Our text is Matthew chapter 2, 1 through 12, but we'll begin by reading uh, Matthew 1, 18, all the way through chapter 2, verse 12. So follow along as I read our passage. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. And when Herod heard the king, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen went, uh, seen when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Dear Heavenly Father, as we consider this text, we pray that you would use it to awaken and stir up our affections for you. Um, We pray that you would use this to lead us to repentance. Use your word to uh, lead us to to turn away from sin, and to, to cling ever more tightly to Christ, who is our Savior. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is preparing his disciples for persecution. Uh, persecution will come, he says, but don't fear, because the Father will take care of you. And he says to them, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny them before my Father who is in heaven. And he says, Do not think I have come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. This 
text is where I've gotten the title for the sermon today, The Sword of Christmas. The birth of Jesus does bring peace to all who receive him as king and as savior. And yet, Christmas also brings a sword. Have you considered that Christmas brings division? A sword. The birth of Jesus makes men and women choose sides. So it's as if an earthquake cracks beneath your feet, cracks the earth beneath your feet, and you have to suddenly choose, well, which side am I going to jump to before being swallowed up? This seems to have been the case with the birth of Jesus and the circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth. Jesus' arrival on the scene causes people to look at that and have to make a decision one way or the other. What will they do with Jesus? No doubt, uh, there were silent nights between Jesus' birth in Bethlehem and the, the account that we read in Matthew 2. But this text reminds us of the great upheaval, of the great stirring up and commotion that Jesus' arrival causes. Even as a baby, a young toddler, Jesus is turning the world upside down. If he truly is the king, then it's not enough to just have a celebration and family time at Christmas. What you'll actually have to do is receive him as your king and worship him. Fall down on your knees in adoration of this king. Really give your life to him. This is the demand that Jesus makes. Matthew is laying out his case in his whole gospel account of the identity of Jesus. Who is Jesus? He's establishing, even from chapter 1, he's establishing that Jesus is the promised son of David, the Messiah, that the prophets spoke of, who would come and rescue God's people. So look in chapter 1, in verses 1 through 7, we see this genealogy of Jesus establishing that he is descended from the covenant line in Abraham, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is not only human, though, he is also divine, for he will be conceived by the Holy Spirit. He'll be born, and his name will be Jesus, as we read in verses 18 to 25. For the angel says he will save his people from their sins. And just as, as an aside, <clears throat> there was some controversy recently over a, a well-known evangelical pastor saying the virgin birth, it, it, it didn't really matter that much as long as you believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And at first, I have to ask, if you're going to believe the, the resurrection, why is the virgin birth so difficult for you to believe? But we, it's more than that, though. We also we lose a lot with, if we just do away with the virgin birth. What we're losing there is this, this idea that the Holy Spirit somehow mysteriously calls Mary to become pregnant. He will be of the Holy Spirit. See, he's not simply human. He is also fully divine. And that's what we have with the virgin birth. That's why we need the virgin birth, because Jesus is fully divine from God and fully man. So, yes, the virgin birth is essential. It is a core doctrine of Christianity. It's not like you can just kind of pick and choose which of the main doctrines you're going to believe. This is foundational to who we are as Christians. Anyway, and now in chapter 2, Matthew is continuing to give evidence that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. He's the rightful 
king which sits on David's throne. And not only is he proclaimed to be the king, he's also treated as the king, even as a a little baby. Look in our passage and notice these three headings we'll we'll go through. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, Jesus is announced as the king of the Jews. In verses 3 to 8, he is confirmed as king by the scriptures. And in verses 9 to 12, he is worshipped as king by the wise men. So he is announced as king, he is confirmed as king, and he is worshipped as king. So first consider this announcement of this child as king. Matthew invites us to join with the people of Jerusalem. uh, To join with the people of Jerusalem in seeing these wise men. Matthew says, Behold! Kind of like, look, look up. Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. I think of when I was in West Africa many years ago with a group of seven other uh, college-aged friends. And as we walked down the street, everyone would look up and see these white people. For some of them, it was the first white people they had seen in a very long time. They would see these eight white teenagers, and they would really stare at me the most because I had a bald head, so I looked even weirder. I looked strange to them. They would look up and see and wonder, what are they up to? What are they doing here in in West Africa? And here we have these mysterious wise men from the east. People would have looked up and recognized, these people are different. They look a little strange. Behold these men coming from the east into Jerusalem. And they have a message in the form of a question. They're asking around the town, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, even though Matthew presents their message as a question, there's also an announcement here. The king of the Jews has been born. For the wise men, there's no question about that. The question isn't whether or not he has been born. He has been born. The king of the Jews has been born. Now the question, where is he? Where can we find him? So they're asking around town in different places. It's a great announcement of the identity of Jesus. Gentiles from the east come to Jerusalem, these mysterious men proclaiming that a king has been born. But how did they know this? How did they know that this king of the Jews had been born? Uh, From their words, reported by Matthew, they know this because they saw his star when it rose. And so many questions come into my mind. Don't they come into your mind about these things? Like, who are these magi? Who are these wise men? They're mysterious. Where did they come from? Perhaps Persia or Babylonia, a long ways away. How many were there? We're not told. Why did they come all this way, hundreds and hundreds of miles for a little baby? Or what about the star? Was it really a star? What what kind of star moves and then rests over a certain house? And how did the wise men come to know it was, quote, his star? How did they know it meant that the king of the Jews had been born? And for the most part, we are left in the dark about all these things. We don't know so much about this account. Now, the wise men were probably well off because of the long journey they took and the gifts that they bring. It it appears they were interested in studying the stars and the movement of the stars. They were familiar, too, it seems, with the Old Testament prophecies about a Jewish Messiah. And they, along with others across the land, it's clear, were expectant that this Messiah would soon come. 
We have some idea about these things. And if you read the commentaries, you'll find many speculations about these things, many interesting speculations about who these wise men were, about the nature of the star. But for the most part, we are left in the dark. We just don't know. And really, there's a purpose in this. Matthew has a purpose in not giving us many details about these things. So one commentator nails it. He covered some of these speculations and then concluded, this, being left in the dark, is exactly what makes Matthew's story so beautiful and instructive. Everything else is left out of the picture in order that the full emphasis may be placed on this one thing, namely, we have come to worship him. The worship of this newborn king. We're left in the dark about so many other things. And yet Matthew wants us to focus in on this king, on this Messiah, that we might worship him. Notice how their, their search, how their announcement is received about this king. It is received with fear. And this fear leads a search of the scriptures and a confirmation that this is indeed the king, the Messiah. So he's announced as king, and now he is confirmed as king. Verse 3, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Now notice the repetition in these first few verses. Herod the king, the king of the Jews. And again, Herod the king. We're moved to ask the question, well, who is the king? Is it Herod? Is he the king, or is this new baby, this newborn child, the king. And no doubt, this is part of Herod's fear as well. If this king has indeed been born, then he is a threat to my rule. Any threat to a king's rule, especially to Herod's, would need to be eliminated as soon as possible. And all Jerusalem is troubled too. They knew Herod's ruthlessness. They knew his fear if someone would try to take his authority. This word troubled, Herod was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. This word troubled refers to being stirred up on the inside. It's when you know something big is about to happen. When you hear some news, so we're frightened and confused and waiting and wondering what's going to happen next. So did you, have you ever heard any foreboding news that just caused you inner angst and almost fear? It was stirring up your insides caused you to be afraid. This is what's happening to Herod in all Israel at the news of this king being born. But there's more going on here too. Herod's mind is already plotting as he hears the news. He assembles all the chief priests and scribes, the Jewish leaders, and asks, asks them where the Christ, that is the Messiah, was to be born. So Herod too, it seems, was familiar with the prophecies about the Messiah. He knew who to go to to ask about this Messiah, the anointed one, where he would be born in order to rescue God's people. Perhaps Herod had heard of the prophecies and yet forgotten them. Perhaps he, perhaps he didn't believe them, or maybe he believed them, but never thought they would actually take place during his lifetime, during his reign. And so he's thrown into a sort of panic. If he is to eliminate this threat, he will have to know where the boy has been born. Herod connects this announcement of the king of the Jews being born with the Messiah who is prophesied from the Old Testament. 
And we get no hint that the Jewish leaders had any trouble whatsoever figuring out where this king would be born. Verse 5, they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And this prophet, of course, is Micah, as Jason pointed out for us last week. But isn't this interesting? You have these Jewish leaders confidently point out from an Old Testament passage in Micah 5 that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. This is amazing that they would read the scriptures in this way, that they would really read the scriptures in such a Christ-centered way. We often go to the Old Testament and we think about, well, this is just kind of rules for the Old Testament people, not really much for us here. We, we really want to go to the New Testament and find out about Jesus. And yet these These scholars, these biblical scholars, knew Micah 5 pointed to the Christ, to the Messiah. This is how they read the scripture. And this serves as a confirmation to King Herod and to Matthew and to even to us that this baby who has been born, this Jesus is the King of the Jews and the promised Messiah who will rule over and shepherd God's people. He will not be a brutal ruler like Herod, or the others the people were familiar with, he would rule in a different way. He would not just be a king, he would be a shepherd king. And we know what kind of shepherd the Lord is from all of Scripture, really, but what comes to my mind, what comes to our mind, is something like Psalm 23. What kind of ruler, what kind of shepherd the Lord is? He is a king who protects and provides for his sheep. He cares for them and gives them peace, even in the presence of their enemies. Indeed, no matter what we go through, even through the valley of the shadow of death, we have nothing to fear because he is with us and his rod and his staff comfort us. Jesus is announced as king and he is confirmed as king. Now, let's look at the rest of our passage and see how he is then worshipped as king. Verse 7, Herod secretly calls in the wise men. He doesn't want to attract too much attention. Everything's already been stirred up. But also he has plans. He asks the wise men what time the star had appeared. And he sends them to Bethlehem and tells them to come back and tell him when they find him because he wants to worship him too. Oh, we know the rest of the story. He wants to destroy this king. So they go their way. And look what Matthew does again. He invites us to look up with the wise men at the star. Verse 9, and behold, look. The star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was born. Now, here we see that this is no ordinary star. There's something different about this star. There's something supernatural and miraculous going on here. It seems that the star they had seen rise now reappears. And look what it says. It says it went before them. It's leading them. It doesn't sound like there's simply a natural explanation for this, although some have tried to make that case. You know how it is on a dark night. Maybe you're driving down the road and you see a big full moon in the, in the sky. And as you drive towards it, it's like it's leading you, right? It's like it's, you're just following it. It's like it's moving along with you. 
But this is not what Matthew's saying. It's not just an appearance of it leading the wise men. He's saying the star is actually moving and leading them. And look, it actually led them until it stopped and rested over the place where the child was. This is something miraculous, supernatural. So you not only have God revealing to the wise men his star, which announced his birth, you not only have the Jewish leaders pointing to the prophets, you also have this miraculous event, this miraculous star leading the wise men to the exact place where the Messiah was. And look how Matthew describes their joy as they see the star. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. He could have said they rejoiced. <laughs> they rejoiced when they saw the star. He could have said they, they rejoiced exceedingly when they saw the star. But he goes a step further. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They are overwhelmed with joy because they knew God was leading them. They knew they would find, soon find the one they had been searching for and worship him. You can learn a lot about someone by what they rejoice in, by what gives them great, exceeding joy. And I think about that myself. I'm, I'm caused to think and, and examine my own heart in, in the things that I rejoice in. What is it that I really rejoice in? I know many this morning, my kids have been rejoicing in gifts, right? I remember that as a kid as well. The anticipation, the excitement, the joy at getting brand new presents on Christmas morning. It was almost too much to take in. I was really rejoicing exceedingly with great joy when Christmas came around. And I'm not saying you should be ashamed at enjoying the gifts that we give and receive. However, there is a limit to the joy that we should have in these earthly things. As we thought about uh, church uh, service this morning, we weren't really tempted to cancel our church services. And the reason is we think there's something special about gathering weekly on the Lord's day to worship Him. This is His day. It belongs to Him. And in, in my f- mind, the Lord's day trumps Christmas day. It takes priority over Christmas day. I still celebrate Christmas. I love Christmas. And yet the Lord's Day is something that God has given us as a gift to worship Him. And yet I confess to a conflict within myself. I hold this as a matter of conscience, the priority of the Lord's Day. And yet a part of me, and I I think probably a selfish part of me, would like to spend Christmas Day quietly at home with the family. Right? Right? And we rightly rejoice in family. This is family is a special gift to us. And yet we must be very careful that we do not begin to idolize family and rejoice in it more than we rejoice in the Savior, Jesus Christ. That we don't exalt it higher than the Lord. And this probably is a temptation perhaps for most of us, more than, say, material things, right? To value those who are closest to us, even to the point where we begin to idolize family and family time. But consider, what else do you rejoice in? What do you rejoice in? 
Or I should ask, what is it you rejoice in exceedingly and with great joy? Is it your work, a promotion or a pay raise, gifts receiving, receiving the praises in honor of, of men and women? What is it that you, you find, if you examine your heart, if you have some quiet time as you're laying your head on your pillow at night, and think about this, what is it that you truly rejoice in? Let us learn from the example of these wise men who rejoiced exceedingly with great joy at the prospect of seeing their Savior. For we too are expectant and hopeful, knowing that Jesus has come and he will come again. Think about this. Jesus is returning. And we don't know when. It could be any moment. But some, I fear, are filled with joy so much in the things of this world, the prospect of Jesus returning causes fear within them. It causes them to be troubled inside And I'm afraid it's even the case with some believers who, having become attached to the things of this world, don't want Jesus to come back quite yet. For if Jesus returns too soon, I won't get to go enjoy vacation next summer at the beach. I won't get to see my children married off. I won't get to to see my grandchildren. Let us test ourselves in these things that we might find our ultimate joy where it should be, in Christ alone, who is our salvation, who is our hope, who is our joy. If you found out that Jesus was coming tomorrow, would you have much joy, exceedingly great joy, that he would come back and rescue us? Or is there a part of you that wants to enjoy something else in this life a little bit longer before Jesus comes back. Well, the wise men go into the house. They see the child with his mother Mary, and look what they do. This is the climax of this part of the story. They fall down and worship this little baby who is the Lord, who is King, who is Messiah and Savior of the world. And it's as if since they found this great treasure, they're willing to lay down all their other treasures for him. For all the treasure in this world is nothing compared to meeting the priceless treasure who is Christ. These treasures, no doubt, were used providentially by God to sustain this this little family and the child and the difficult times ahead of them. We see God's provision of the boy, but we also see his protection. For he warned the wise men in a dream not to return to Herod, so they went back home a different way. Now that's our story, but let me draw out just a few implications for us. First, notice that Jesus is the king, and with his arrival comes not simply peace, but a sword. Jesus brings everyone to a point of decision. What will they do when they encounter him? What will they do when he's preached? The wise men receive revelation about this king of the Jews, and they are moved to seek him out and to worship him. They rejoice in the birth of God's anointed. But consider the other alternative we see in the story. Herod's response to the news was great fear. He was troubled and upset. He was stirred up, and he rejects God's anointed and even sets himself up as an enemy seeking to destroy the child. And ultimately, we know Herod was simply Satan's tool to try and destroy God's anointed. 
Ever since the beginning, the devil has been seeking to thwart the plan of God and to kill the Lord's anointed. But notice one other reaction to the story, and it's all Jerusalem. It says all Jerusalem was troubled also by the news of this king's birth. But we're not told how they responded after that. We're left wondering, what did they do with Jesus? What did they do with him as he grew, as he became a man, as he preached and taught and healed? Would some of those who heard this report later become his followers? Would some of them hear the news of Jesus and receive him? And we are led in this to consider our own response to Jesus. Now, we who are Christians and members of this church, we've made that decision. We've decided, perhaps a long time ago, that we are going to be worshipers of Jesus. And yet we also must admit, at times of temptation and sin, we see Jesus as a threat to our own authority, to our own enjoyment of this life, perhaps. We see Jesus as a threat to our own authority over our lives. There, there are bits of us. It's kind of like there are bits of us trying to hang on to our sovereignty over ourselves. So we must come again to Jesus and commit to being worshipers of him, receiving him as king, to seek him out and to offer him our very lives in acts of worship. A second implication, we should remember what kind of king Jesus is. He brings a sort of division, yes, because one must make a decision with Jesus, but he is also the prince of peace. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He's the shepherd king who will rule over God's people. For anyone who comes to him as a humble worshiper, he will bring them peace forever. And this is the kind of shepherd Jesus himself is. As he says he was in John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. You see, Jesus is the ruler who lays down his life for his subjects. You'll remember that day Jesus hung on the cross. Satan thought he had finally accomplished his goal by destroying God's anointed. And yet, it was that very event that saved our lives. Jesus, fully divine and fully man, he died on the cross to save us, offering up his life as an atonement for sins. This is why he was born, that he might die for our sins. And it's interesting, isn't it, that the very way he was introduced that day in Jerusalem is the very way he was announced as he hung on the cross. For there was a sign above the bloody Christ which read, this is Jesus, king of the Jews. And yet he's not only king of the Jews. Did you notice that in our text as well? He's also king of the Gentiles. For just as the wise men seek him out to worship him, so God has drawn Jews and Gentiles both to Jesus so that he might save all of his people through faith in Jesus Christ. For now God has created one new people for himself, not determined by ethnicity, Or by keeping of the law, but determined by the Spirit. Those who are born spiritually of God and trust in Christ, we are the spiritual offspring of Abraham. We are children of God by faith. And so now we have peace with God through faith. But one final implication. The focus of Matthew, not only here, but throughout the rest of the book, reminds us of the centrality of Jesus Christ. Right? He wanted to focus in on this Savior, on this King, on Jesus Christ. It reminds us of the centrality of Jesus to our theology and life. 
We can go on all kinds of different tangents in our theology. There are all kinds of rabbit trails we can follow. In this text, examples would be the identity of the wise men or the exact nature of the star. But for Matthew, Christ is at the center of the story. He's the focus. And in our studies, we must remember the focus of our attention must ultimately rest on the glory of our triune God. We love God's glory. It's got to be all about Him. Our focus must be on Him and not ourselves or any other thing. Our goal must be to know Jesus, to know God, to love Him, to worship Him. So this Christmas, let me ask you, is this where your focus is? On the glory of the triune God? On how you might worship Him more? On how you might know Him more? How you might treasure Him more? Well, let's pray that God would make it so in our hearts. Let us pray.